Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. Uh, this evening, we will wrap up chapter 21 and potentially get into chapter 22. We will see how we do with the end of chapter 21. One of the things I want to do this evening is not only get into a theological reflection as it relates to the last four or five verses of chapter 21, but on the tail end of that, get into a reflection on lust and purity. We have seen the importance and really the priority of a pure heart, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And by that we mean we are washed in the purity of the Lamb, that unstained purity of our Lord. And so that will be very much a part of our reflection, as I have said on more than one occasion this is just not about some abstract theological reflection. That really wouldn't serve us very well on radio here. <laughs> to keep you engaged, it is very important that we look at the various virtues. And uh, so this evening, I thought it would be good to extend our reflection into purity and do so within the context of how it counters lust. And so we will offer up a reflection on lust and purity, and we will do so, of course, with the help of Tom Soquinas and the contemporary theologian uh, Peter Kraft. Now, chapter 21. We have been at chapter 21 for a few days, so we are again at the tail end of this chapter. So if you want to turn your Bibles to chapter 21, and we will go ahead and pick up with verse 22. We will take it all the way through verse 27, the conclusion of the chapter. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gave it light, and its lamp was the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and to it the kings of the earth will bring their treasure. During the day its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. The treasure and wealth of the nations will be brought there, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does abominable things or tells lies." Only those will enter whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right, so what do we have here? Well, as Peter Williamson in his uh, commentary on the book of Revelation highlights here, John radically differentiates the new Jerusalem from the old by saying what? I saw no temple in the city. So here, there is no special location per se, as in historic Jerusalem. Its walls of gold and its cubicle shape have already indicated that the city as a whole is not merely a temple, but the holy of holies itself, right? Permeated by God's presence. This is something we really drew out last week. Now, it is stated in a way that stretches our logic. What do we mean by that? Well, its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So God and the Lamb have become the dwelling place. All of life is lived in their presence. As elsewhere in Revelation, the Lamb manifestly shares the fullness of divinity with the Lord God Almighty. Now, the details of Ezekiel's vision of the future temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 
are now revealed to have been what but symbolic. While the New Jerusalem fulfills a prophecy of Jeremiah's in an almost literal manner, listen to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the Lord's throne. All nations will gather together there to honor the name of the Lord at Jerusalem. That being said, if you were to take a close look at the next four verses, they show a certain fulfillment of another prophecy. Isaiah's description of the future restoration of Zion, another name for Jerusalem. In Isaiah's prophecy, the arrival of light symbolizes God's radiant presence among his people and the illumination his glory provides to the nations. What follows here is the gathering of Zion's children from distant places, the enrichment of the city and adornment of the temple from the wealth of the nations, the destruction of nations that refuse to submit and service by former enemies. Here we are made to see that Jerusalem will enjoy perfect security and her people will be righteous and numerous, possessing the land for all time. God's glory will be their light forever, making superfluous the light of sun and moon. So a very powerful image. You can see here, too, the importance of the word Catholic once again. Remember the word Catholic coming from the Greek kataholike simply means universal. When you start to talk about the new covenant and the light of Christ as an earmark of the new covenant, we are talking about how the light of Christ and the new covenant will permeate all nations, the world. It is essentially universal. And as we read here in the book of Revelation, in the new Jerusalem, there's no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city. For the glory of God illuminates the city. What a beautiful truth. So the risen Jesus shares in the divine action. Its lamp was what but the Lamb of God. Now all nations will walk by its light, meaning the light, of course, that emanates from the new Jerusalem. The bride city has walls of, what did we talk about last week? Jasper, clear as crystal, and a street of pure gold, transparent as glass. So beautiful. What about the, this mention of the kings of the earth bring their treasure? Well, when the kings of the earth bring their treasure to Jerusalem, they too fulfill ancient prophecies. We should appreciate here the timing of this verse. Did we not just celebrate the epiphany? What is the epiphany all about? But the kings coming from the east to give their gifts to the infant king. The east representing the pagan nations, but what have we just talked about? The pagan nations, the Gentile nations, are now included if they so choose to be a part of God's new covenant. So very important to, I think, appreciate the timing of our treatment here of this language where the kings of the earth bring their treasure, literally speaking, right? Now, except for an initial description of Jesus as ruler of the kings of the earth in chapter 1, verse 5, the other six times the kings of the earth are mentioned in Revelation, they appear in a negative light. Go to chapter 17, verse 2, and 18, verse 3, they are consorting with the harlot. In chapter 19, verse 9, they are allying themselves to the beast. And in chapter 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth are trembling at their eminent judgment. 
This negative picture certainly corresponds to some prophetic denunciations of the kings of the earth that you find in the Psalms and Isaiah and Ezekiel. However, the Old Testament texts show the kings of the earth coming to hear Solomon's wisdom, the kings of the earth acknowledging the supremacy of the Davidic king, and the kings of the earth worshiping the Lord God of Israel. Now, this vision of John presupposes a division. Some kings of the earth, human rulers and, and those who follow their lead, will continue in evil doing and will be condemned, while other kings of the earth will repent and acknowledge the Lord and his Messiah, accepting the teaching of the new Solomon who will enter the new royal city. Could we not say, my friends, that in the course of history, many kings, chiefs, rulers, and leaders of many kinds have embraced Christ's gospel and have entered the new Jerusalem's earthly entrance, the church, bringing with them thousands and thousands of people in extraordinary treasure. And certainly other chiefs, kings, and rulers have decided the road more traveled. <laughs> and unfortunately, bringing with them thousands and thousands of people. Now, how about verses 25 to 27? Verses 25 to 27 elaborate on the absolute security of the new Jerusalem and explain who and what can enter this city that is itself the holy of holies. Let us look at some of the elements here in these verses. First, the gates. The gates of an ancient city, my friends, were an essential element of its defense. Huh? Open during the day when approaching enemy could be seen and closed at night lest an enemy enter under cover of darkness. The fact that the gates of the new Jerusalem will never be shut signifies what? That all threat of evil has been eliminated. This is why it's so important to get into the historical context of what is going on in some of these verses. To come to understand and appreciate when the gates might be open, when the gates might be shut, is so valuable to better understand what is going on in this verse. In particular, the fact that the gates of the New Jerusalem will never be shut signifies that all threat has been eliminated. Now, the fact that the city is described as having gates and that the kings bring their treasure into it has caused some readers to wonder if people can come in and out of the New Jerusalem as they please. And if so, where can they go? You know, what lies outside the glorious city? These questions should be answered in light of the book's visionary symbolic character, and this is something that Peter Williamson gets into in his commentary. Earlier I said that the New Jerusalem is not a literal city, and it's not, not how we think about it conventionally speaking. Certainly we can go and seek out the Lamb of God in, in any one church or maybe a chapel. You go to a very specific place per se. I don't want to be misunderstood there. But what we're made to appreciate is that now the church is universal, right? There's churches and chapels everywhere. And while you go to a definitive place, the church itself becomes something that is now everywhere. And this is what we are made to reflect upon, if you will. So if the New Jerusalem is not a literal city, how we think of it in conventional terms, what is it? It is a symbol of the whole new world where God will dwell with his people. A description of this new world in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, adds perspective. Listen to these verses. They shall not harm or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with knowledge of the Lord 
as water covers the sea. So the holy mountain, my friends, another way of referring to Jerusalem and its temple, exists in a new earth that is filled and transformed by the knowledge of God. The beginning of chapter 21 says that the new Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb, the people of God. The description of this city is a symbolic way of depicting a variety of truths about our eternal future. Above all, the new intimacy of God with his people that will be ours when the kingdom comes at Christ's return, which of course is first and foremost found in the Eucharist. Huh? We've talked about the Eucharist being the second coming on more than one occasion. So the visions and revelation depict symbols of real things. And in order to understand the realities to which the symbols point, we reflect there on the meaning of each symbol. So we hear the, the verse, there will be no night there. Like the sea, night serves as a symbol of evil, which has now been vanquished. How about nothing unclean and the treasure and wealth of the nations will be brought there? This echoes several verses in Isaiah chapter 60 that speak of the best products and, and precious metals that will be brought to future Zion from all over the world. In itself, we have to remember that material wealth is a good rather than an evil, even if Babylon and, and the nations were corrupted by their lust for it. In Isaiah 60, this wealth furnishes what? Acceptable offerings on God's altar and adorns his sanctuary. So what does the wealth of the nations that will enter the eternal kingdom signify? Well, some have speculated that it refers to the best of human culture, of literature and, and, and art and science, purified of every defect. Like our physical bodies at the resurrection, life in the new Jerusalem will be characterized both by continuity with what is familiar and excellent, and by what is so radically new that we cannot even now imagine. So again, John reminds his readers that the holiness of the new Jerusalem excludes anyone who does abominable things or tells lies, literally anyone who practices abominations or falsehood. The word abominable is from the same Greek root translated as depraved, referring to moral conduct that is abhorrent to God. In contrast, what do we read? Those privileged to enter the new Jerusalem include only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And how are we to interpret this verse, my friends? Well, does not this verse refer to those redeemed by Christ, who washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb through repentance and baptism and have persevered in faith, and have persevered in faith. And so here we arrive at really an opportunity to extend our reflection into purity. Because anytime you start talking about being washed in the blood of the Lamb, are we not talking about being washed in the purity of Christ, where the pure blood of Christ cleanses and purifies and gives us the grace and strength to overcome our own defects, our own sin? As the popular a theologian and author Peter Kraft reflects in Back to Virtue, Everyone knows our society is sex-obsessed, sex-saturated. As he says, if, if lust ceased tomorrow, we would be plunged into the greatest economic depression in history. Remove sex appeal from advertising, advertising from the economy, and the economy from our civilization, what would be left? 
But ours is only an extreme form today of really what we could call a perennial phenomenon. It did not take Freud or Hugh Hefner to discover that that lust is fun, my friends. We know that. Even St. Thomas Aquinas noted that lust, well, it is about the greatest of all pleasures, and these absorb the mind more than any others. But what's interesting here is that when we turn to the spiritual masters, we find a surprising soberness about lust. They neither fixate on it nor excuse it. They neither call it the greatest sin nor the least. Uh, We have spoken before about how pride is the foundational sin because of the way in which it is a sin of the devil. It's interesting. Jesus spent much more time warning against temptations from the world, avarice, human respect, and from the devil, pride and hypocrisy, than from the flesh. We often think sexual sins must be the greatest ones because they promise the greatest pleasures, but this is a very um, stoic uh, viewpoint. It is not a Christian one. God, not the devil, invented sex and pleasure and the connection between the two. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas says that sexual pleasure was even greater before the fall because the fallen and unnatural can never give as much pleasure as the unfallen and natural. But as we all know, lust is a sin. The desire for the sins of fornication or adultery. And we have to appreciate something here. Jesus clearly said, that desire for adultery is adultery. What did he say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28? Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yet, many people today believe that even the act of fornication, much less the desire, couldn't be sinful, and therefore neither could lust, because it, what do we hear? It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't hurt anyone. Well, St. Thomas Aquinas long ago refuted that argument, that argument that states simple fornication is, is not contrary to charity because no one is injured by it, by pointing out what? That fornication is contrary to the love of our neighbor because it is opposed to the good of the child to be born and that it is a sufficiently weighty matter for mortal sin because, in the words of Aquinas, every sin committed directly against human life is a mortal sin. It may be, as the famous Fatima message says, more souls go to hell because of this sin than any other. But my dear friends, that does not mean it is the worst sin, only the most popular. Do not confuse quantity with quality. It may be the widest road, but it is not the deepest pit. Here, as Peter Kraft reflects, we often define lust either too narrowly or too broadly, and both can be convenient ways of denying our guilt. We can define it so narrowly that we are seldom guilty of it by suggesting that, well, lust means only treating a person of the opposite sex as an object or thing rather than as a subject or person. Lust then becomes the attitude a married man might have toward a prostitute but not toward a mistress. Of course, such a definition conveniently forgets the wife, just as the concept of abortion as a matter between a woman and her doctor conveniently forgets the father and the baby. You see what's going on there, my friends? This whole idea of uh, use and object. What have we said before? What did St. John Paul II say? People are made to be loved and things used. We love things and use people. Now, how about this 
flip side of too broad? Well, we could define lust so broadly that it is no sin at all. For example, the, the notion that lust means any great passion, like a lust for life or a lust for learning. By this definition, all the saints lusted for God, right? Another overextension of the term is one that calls any sexual desire lust. But lust is a sin and sexual desire as such is not. And I think this is an important distinction. It is God's invention and implied in his very first commandment to our race. Be fruitful and multiply, right? God did not mean learn the multiplication tables. Nor did Adam and Eve grow children like plants before the fall. Their desire for each other was subject to what? Reason. But contrary to modern prejudice, this does not mean that reason annihilated it or took the fun out of it. No. Not only is sexual desire not sinful, it is sometimes, what? A moral obligation. A husband and wife should have it for each other and consciously cultivate it. By licit means, and of course, in the context of personal love and respect. So lust is a sin, which means it darkens the intellect. It blinds the mind. Huh? It blinds the mind. And so we are in need of this great virtue of purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And remember what we have said about that word pure in the Greek, hognos, huh? clean. If lust is like mud, then its opposite is like clear water or clean air. What have we just talked about in chapter 21? Have we not seen that the Holy of Holies and the New Jerusalem is clear, transparent, clean? You put this in the context of the human person, and well, we speak to this as the pure of heart. Purity's most obvious aspect is certainly sexual, as confronting sexual lust. But it is much more than that. Think about this for a second. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is it not the greatest reward of all to see God? That is joy, my friends. The fulfillment of everyone's deepest desire, whether they know it or not. This is eternal life to know thee in such a way as to see thee in a way that mind and heart can begin to imagine, especially the impure mind and the impure heart. And Peter Kreft here makes, I think, a very important point. It just doesn't satisfy our curiosity. I think there's a tendency to just think about all of this in the context of, well, I want to see God because I'm so curious. No, it satisfies our deepest longing. It satisfies our deepest desires. And what is that? Well, the satisfaction of knowing love. So we are promised the greatest and inconceivable gift to see God face to face as he is, just as Enoch did, just as Moses did, just as Job did. And did not this satisfy their deepest longing? What have I said about Job before? He was an inquisitor. He was constantly asking questions. God answering his questions isn't what satisfied him, but seeing God, living in the presence of God, this is what satisfied him. What did St. Thomas Aquinas say when Jesus said to him, you have written well of me, Thomas, what would you have as your reward? Only you, God, only you. To be with you, to see you. 
to have that deepest desire fulfilled by just being in your presence, seeing you as you are. Mm. And what are we talking about here? But the beatific vision, the spiritual marriage, something no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9? Brothers and sisters, this is what we call home. We have heard it said before, our home is where we take God. Well, when we see God face to face, wherever it might be, this is home. Why did the Israelite in the Old Testament say that the temple in Jerusalem is the center of the earth? Because the temple in Jerusalem is where you sought to be in communion with God, where you were in his presence. The temple in Jerusalem was your second home, if not your first home. This is why when we go to churches or chapels, as I was mentioning earlier, this is another home. And this home, living in the presence of God, is what we were made for. Our pearl of great price. Our one thing necessary, huh? The una necessarium, the one thing that is necessary. Brothers and sisters, if we only knew that we would eagerly sacrifice anything and everything in the world for this longing to be satisfied. You know, in our treatment on theology of the body, we explored this in great detail, that everything we do that seeks enjoyment, everything that we do that seeks pleasure, everything that we do that seeks this, what we can call material satisfaction, is only a quasi-longing for God. And we come to the realization that in the end, only God can satisfy our deepest longing. So, this beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, answers two questions. What is our ultimate end? And what is our means to that end? Seeing God is our ultimate end. And our means to that end is going deeper and deeper and deeper into that virtue of purity, which always involves, always involves, anywhere and everywhere, some element of sacrifice. That sacrifice of always needing to be purified, cleansed, so that indeed our hearts will see God for who He is. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com. Dot org.